This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. The protagonist of the new young adult novel, Rosie Frost and the Falcon Queen, is a girl with red hair who gets sent to a fantastical boarding school after her mother dies. One of the school's rules is to have courage to make the choice you fear the most. The author of the book just so happens to be a woman who is also famed for her red hair and who also lost a parent at a formative age. She is, too, someone who has made many courageous choices through an extraordinary career. Born in Watford to a mum who cleaned and a car dealer dad, Jerry Halliwell Horner shot to global fame as Ginger Spice, one-fifth of the Spice Girls and the best-selling female pop group of all time. She is known for girl power, for her Union Jack dress, for meeting Nelson Mandela, and for once patting King Charles, then Prince of Wales, playfully on the bottom at the height of her fame in 1997. The Spice Girls sold over 100 million records worldwide and had seven number ones. Halliwell Horner's subsequent solo career netted her four more. After the birth of her first child, Bluebell, in 2006, she started writing while a single mother and released a series of best-selling children's books, the Eugenia Lavender novels. In the years that followed, her life changed dramatically. She met and married the Formula One Red Bull boss, Christian Horner, became a stepmother and had a baby boy at 44. And now she returns to books with the publication of Rosie Frost and the Falcon Queen, a mixture of fantasy and history with a message that we can all be our own heroes. Ginger Spice, I'm sure, would approve. I try to have courage and work through it, she has said. I'd rather try, even if I fail. Jerry Halliwell Horner, welcome to How to Fail. Wow, what an intro. <laughs> it's all you. I can't quite believe that you're sitting opposite me, and yet here you are. And we have just been chatting away before we started recording, and I feel like I already know you so deeply. <laughs> And you strike me as someone who is really a woman's woman and who is interested in others. And you can't always say that about people who became famous in their 20s. But is that something, have you always had curiosity about other people? I like people. I think we need each other. I don't know, maybe it's because from where I'm from, but I think it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're the dustman or the duchess, everybody's interesting and everybody cries, everyone loves we're more alike than different. Yeah. And that idea of courage, which runs through this book, and in many ways through your life, is that something you've learned, do you think? Or were you born with it? That's a really interesting question. What makes us who we are? What I will say, you know, for me, courage doesn't mean that you, you don't feel that you're not scared. Mm. 
I think it's actually having courage is when you're scared. I'm scared a lot of the time, you know, or I have those doubts like everybody. Am I doing the right thing here? And sometimes I get it wrong. Sometimes I make mistakes. But there's something inside of me that is always, when I really listen to that inner voice, that sort of pushes on past the fear. Mm. That's when I get it right. But it does take courage sometimes to listen to yourself did it take courage to start writing the first time when you wrote Eugene and Lavender? I tell you what, it was interesting because before I was in the Spice Girls, I studied theatre, Stanislavski, and I studied English literature. I was doing really well. I was getting A's for A-level for my essays. I was doing Sons and Lovers and I was really like excelling. Suddenly I was really finding my, my place. And so I've always loved the power of word, of storytelling. And, you know, throughout my career, I use that. I love writing the lyrics in songs, in videos. I always love the story you're telling in the movie. I love that part of it, always. And it never left me. You know, for me, a, a song lyrics is like a poem. You know, and also having the power to move someone, to touch someone, connect. When I was in Los Angeles, I read this book called The Artist's Way. Because I was sort of in between. I, I'd released my third album. I think I was the solo album, I felt a bit, mm, what am I doing? And I always love, I think, creating. I feel happy creating things. And this book, The Artist's Way, it makes you do a series of challenges, so to speak. You know, whether it's take yourself on a date by yourself, write about the story that you fantasize to have in your own life, just simple things like that. And it sort of unlocks, you know, rooms in your house that you didn't know were there. And then I, so I started playing again, you know, sort of being imaginative I like creating things like voice for the voiceless. And so I always start with a little bit of trepidation, but it's a mixture of, I feel like the world needs this. Mm. The world needs this. Make your creativity, your art, speak to people, connect. And so that was the first set of stories that I, I wrote. I felt like, you know, this is going to really connect to that really younger audience, girls and boys, you know, so they can see something that they might relate to. Yeah, That's always been in me. What do you think is the most powerful lyric you've ever written or the one that you're proudest of? I mean, there are some lyrics that in the Spice Girls I wrote in my bed and then contributed because it's a you know collaborative. There's lots yeah. of people and you have to work together. But I've collaborated and given you know themes and lines that you know have been used for a top line melody and then it's been built on. And then as you, you grow in confidence with that writing, and, and I feel confident that I can do that. But I've never stopped writing music, and I thought I'm going to save it, even when I'd stopped writing, you know, as a solo artist as well. And I kept it. And there is a song that you can get in Rosie Frost. You can just scan it, and it's called It's a Beautiful Life. And that song, you know, I wrote that, and it's just me, very reflective, and after you've been through such, you know, hard stuff, real stuff, and sometimes you metamorphosize like a butterfly. And the lyrics in it I'm really proud of. Mm. I, I'm totally a lyric girl. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you because we're similar ages and I feel so lucky that I grew up with your lyrics and with the Spice Girls because you represented something so important that had real integrity and it was formative for me and as you know a whole generation of women and I look at teenagers today she said sounding like a grandma but I sort of feel for them because they don't have the same clarity that I feel that you gave us and I just want to thank you there's no no question I just want to thank you thank for that. you do you know I was talking to my daughter she's 17 she said to me, she feels a little bit sad for the younger generation that they don't have that sort of, like the pop stars that you sort of really, I don't know if it's healthy or not to sort of really connect with mm -hmm. because there's such choice now. Yes. But for her, she had Katy Perry, Taylor Swift. There was a few out there that you could like, okay, I'm backing her, I'm connecting with. There doesn't seem as, that's what she said to me. Yeah. I don't know if that's true or not. Having role models or just songs that we can all connect to or books. You know, for me, and I've said this, my mother was out at work, okay? And so I was at home watching TV and I watched American television 
Charlie's Angels, the A-team, and Rocky. Those themes are like, you can do anything. Mm -hmm. They were infusing me with power. And the same with books at the time. The narrative, if I couldn't afford to go on holiday, I was reading a great book. That's infused me with power. And so I think there's different ways to find it and connect it. Yeah. You start the book with a letter in which you write, even though you may recognize my name, I've never felt that special. In fact, I've often felt like an outsider. My dad died when I was young. I felt lost. And at times I was bullied. I didn't know who I could trust. So what do you do when you don't know who to trust? Well, I turn to books. Can you take us back to that child who didn't feel that special? It's funny. I think no matter who we are, we, we want to feel included and we want to connect. You know, I come from a working class background. So at my junior school, it was fun. everything, you know, it is what it is. You know, we didn't have a lot of money and we couldn't compare and despair. So there was that already going on. My father was quite old. So, you know, everyone thought he was my granddad coming to school. We didn't have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So you sort of feel, and I felt conscious of that. And I got really lucky that I got picked out of this school to go to a grammar school. And it was an amazing school, girls' grammar. But all those girls, they would come from quite, they have very good families. And and so I, I definitely felt the difference there. You know, that, you know, that they had more money and come from a different background. So I always found comfort in movies and books mm. and music. I had something not the same, but similar, yeah. where I grew up in the North of Ireland, never had the accent, felt like an outsider. Yeah. My dad was a doctor, but he, it was assumed that he was military, but he wasn't. And it was just like a, a difficult time. Yeah. And I think I came out of that feeling insecure and wanting validation. This does have a point in the story. Yeah, yeah, go, go I wanted it. validation from as many people as I could get validation from. Now, I don't know if that was your mindset, but I can imagine if I then became globally famous in search for this validation, that could be quite a sort of difficult place to be. Do you relate to any of that? Yeah, I do. I think... And then I'd like to say to all my younger peers, my sisters and brothers and whoever you are, I mean, this is a hard lesson learned that actually, if I'm looking for outside validation, ask ourselves, are we making ourselves more vulnerable? Yeah. So actually that inner strength, if you can have that self-confidence from a very safe place, I think that would be more useful. Mm. When I was younger... My father was a broadsheet reader. He was really clever. He was the one that had a stack of books like this, you know, behind an um, avid reader and interest in politics. And the way I'd get his attention was if I suddenly was his Shelley Temple, mm -hmm. right? And so by singing and dancing, I suddenly got his attention, validation. If you wanted to unpack it and rewind it, say, oh, is that what that was all about? So is it bad? Is it good? I don't know. But... What I have learned, and I'm, you know, not perfectly, is that if I can have that inner confidence in myself, then I'm not a paper bag blowing in the wind. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. According to what that person thinks of me. Yes. It's like the weather is going to change. Yeah. Hard lessons learned. Definitely. So to speak. Does it feel weird talking about the Spice Girls? You strike me as someone who doesn't like to complain about which is an admirable quality. It's British, isn't it? It's, it's very, very it's generational. Like, yes. I think it's generational, yeah. isn't it? But it's also part of that about looking back and not... Uh, uh, yeah, do you mind my asking about... No, I don't. Like, no. Okay. no, not at all. But I'm sort of mindful that it depends how you want to look at any situation, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we can always find flaws in anything but we can also find beauty and gratitude in anything it depends what day of the week or that time we want to ask ourselves about it what our headspace but you know I'd like to think the Spice Girls belongs to everyone yeah. it's not just five members it's a generation so for me I respectfully am so grateful to you know that whole tribe of people that connected you know in that moment of time and beyond and only good things came from it. Mm. Well, I know because we were, again, chatting before we started recording about our mutual friend, Dolly Alderton, yeah, who we love and adore, who interviewed you recently for the Sunday Times Star magazine. And she asked you about 90s media pressure. And you said, listen, Anne Boleyn had it worse. <laughs> and I thought that 
was such an amazing reply. It's so true. Yeah. It's, but every generation has their challenges. You know, I want to say about Dolly, okay? So I knew she was going to interview me. And I thought, okay, I really hope she reads my book. And that's, you know, a demand of her time. Can I do the same for her? So I read her book, right? And it was her first book about love and what I know about love. Everything I know, Everything about. I know about love. And what struck me, well, I, I, for me, I felt it was like the generational challenge of being 30 on steroids, yes. right? And my heart broke a little bit for her because it was exactly the pressure of being 30. You know, all those tick boxes of job, weight, relationships, all of those things. Everybody's toothache is everybody's toothache. Do you know what I mean? It's just a different one, so to speak. And I think it also it's easier to be protective about other people. Yes. Does that make sense? Well, I find it easier to defend someone else than myself, maybe. Yeah. So do you have more of an issue, say, the 90s media pressure on body image? You have more of an issue for your bandmates than you would for yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, you just feel protective of, you yeah. know, of family and friends and people. You know, just in general, I think today everybody has pressures. Mm. You know, you can look at social media, but then social media is also a brilliant thing. We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Rosie Frost is also a kind of love letter to friendship. And you quote, I'd never come across this quote, and I have literally written a book about friendship, and I hadn't come across this quote from Oscar Wilde, that friendship is far more tragic than love. It lasts longer. How beautiful. What do you think you have learned about friendship in your life? I tell you what, why I've really valued friendship is because I didn't have relationships in my 20s or 30s. I didn't find that sort of committed, long-lasting relationship. So I actually invested in my friendships mm-hmm. very, very much. I always have. I valued them and put that time into it. And I'm really thankful for those friendships. Mm. And you can make friends at any time. We can make friends. I think, why not? Yeah. I'm really grateful for friendships. Have you ever ended a friendship? I'm not ended, but I think someone said to me, friendships can be seasonal. They can be decade, you know, just for that decade. Or they can be, you know, and they all have their time. It doesn't give any less or more value to that friendship. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, and sometimes I love it when you can not see a friend for long times and you can just connect straight away. Yes. Yeah. So before we get on to your failures, I just want to talk about your husband. Because as someone, me, who was never into Formula One, couldn't understand it, never watched it. But it's the one programme that my husband and I agree on, the Netflix documentary drama. And now I've become obsessed with F1. So (laughs) your husband is Christian Horner. You met and you got married and you had your baby. And he is on the record as saying that you're very different characters, but you complement each other well. Do you agree with that? Very much so. And it was actually Dolly who said to me, she sort of flagged it up. Did you know that you could have a best friend who is your partner? 
And I didn't know that until I met Christian. He's definitely my best friend. That's so lovely. Yeah. And it sort of really took me time to really know and trust that. Mm. Uh, From the off, you know, I think being your worst self, then you deserve the best of each other as well. You know, all of it. You can be your silliest self. So I'm very grateful for that. I think it's because I didn't have that relationship with anyone for a long time. So finding someone that you can be yourself with, whatever that is. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. And I live for your cameos in F1 Drive to Survive. (laughs) They're always my favorite bits. Really? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay, let's get on to your failures. Your first failure is the journey of writing. So this was about when you first wrote the book and your initial draft read very differently, didn't it? So tell us about that. God, I went through so many drafts, actually, is the truth. It took you nine years, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, it took me seven years. And here's the truth, is that I've never written a long novel before, and I found it quite tricky. And and there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just my experience. And I always love character, because I think if you don't care about the character, who cares if you climb Mount Everest? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Who cares? So I wrote... The first draft. The first draft, I showed it to Jacqueline Wilson. <laughs> I mean, yeah, she was Who's so... given an amazing quote, by the way. Yeah, because she's book. seen yeah. the first draft and she's seen the last, wow. you know, so she's amazing. And she was giving these talks on Jane Eyre and she says, come to that. She was really encouraging, really encouraging. That's the first. How did you meet her? It was something to do with Battersea Dogs Home, potentially. Because yeah. we both love animals. I love animals. Me too. I met her there. She's so nice. Just really generous and encouraging, just as you hope. And then I I just kept on going and I just fell down so many times. And then it got rejected. And I I thought, oh, yeah, I've got it's it's getting better. Sometimes I get the visual in my mind before it's on the page. Mm. I can see what it's meant to be. And I thought, yeah, maybe the publishers will help me clean it up to a better standard. So I showed it to some publishers and it got rejected. This was about how many years ago? Hang on. So it was before lockdown. It's about 2019, something like that. And I was gutted. Okay. It was only a few. I only sent it a couple of publishers, right, to be fair. And I'm then, this sounds name droppy, because I work for the Royal Commonwealth, okay? And one of the things they do is the literacy campaign. Mm-hmm. And it's encouraging kids all around the world to submit their stories. It's brilliant. Always in autumn, they have this essay competition, the finalists, and they invite everyone to come. And so I was at Buckingham Palace, I was standing there and I was feeling a bit like, you know, I, I don't know. It was like being at a party and you just think, oh, I feel a bit shy. Right? Or something, a little bit. And there was a man standing there. You know, it was an older fella. And I said, oh, oh what's your name? I'll speak to anyone. And his name was William. And I said, oh, you're right. And he said, oh, yeah. And I said, oh, what publishing? And he said, Penguin. And I was like, oh, Penguin. <laughs> right. I was really like, hi. And then I started telling him. Oh, I said, oh, I've just been, you know, struggling. Is there any chance you could read my my uh, first, this draft I've got? And he went, yeah, no problem. But what I didn't realise, I am giving Humpty Dumpty to Mozart. This is William Boyd, who'd written Any Human Heart. I'd read Any Human Heart. It's amazing. And he read it. And then he gave me notes. And he said to me, okay, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to rewrite the whole thing, but not in the first person, but in the third person, and also in the past tense, not the present tense. You've backed yourself in a corner. So I did it. I wrote the whole thing again. And that was the best advice I got. It really helped. It really, really helped. So two questions, I suppose. I also write books. My first novel got rejected by the first five publishers that we sent it to. It's quite gutting, isn't it? (laughs) It's so gutting. And my agent at the time just forwarded me the entire rejection email so I could see what they were saying. And I've never forgotten who did it either. I can still remember their names. But it requires a level of resilience to come back from that, particularly with something that you care so much about. Yeah. How did you... It's funny. Okay, here's the truth, yeah. right? So when I wrote Eugenia Lavender, and that was for like for seven-year-olds, yeah. okay, I asked myself, oh, I want to continue writing again. Should I just age her up? Right, that was my first thought. And Christopher Little, who discovered J.K. Rowling, yes. right, he became my agent. I, I said to him, oh, should I just age her up? And he went, no, start again, right? I was like, okay. It was quite you know, encouraging, but... Mm. 
And I thought, why am I doing this? Why am I writing? And I learned to first of all, write about what you know, okay? And who are you writing for? There's two things. One is that I wanted to write for any person, whatever age, that if anyone felt bullied in their life, right, bullied, and we can find that power through stories, through adventure, and it can be, and it, you can hide that vegetables and chocolate, I was thinking, it doesn't have to be heavy, it can be light. And so that was the first thing. And I thought about that, I think it was yesterday, because I was thinking, you know, why am I out here, you know, in the public? Because if anyone feels bullied, I want them to, or just want to find their power in their life, read Rosie Frost, mm. right? That was for that kid or for that older person, it doesn't matter, for that reason. And then the other thing is, I start to fall in love with the characters. I start to care about the characters. Like there's a kid in the story called Charlie, and Christopher Little said to me, oh, I think you should get rid of him. And I was like, no, <laughs> no way. I love Charlie. And you start to get attached to them like they're real people. It's really odd. Yeah. And so I just felt compelled not to give up. Mm. And someone said to me, you know, I think I just learned right from long back. It's about stickability. Yes. Never give up. You've had Bear grills on Yes. Yeah, he always says never give up. Yes. And you strike me as someone with a very strong work ethic. Have you always very worked much very hard? I think I got that from my mum. Yeah. You know, she was always working. Yeah, sometimes it's wavered. It hasn't been perfect. But I think if you believe and care about something, then you'll go for it. So what you, are we here for as well? Yeah. You know, someone asked me this the other day and I thought, what am I going to do? Rest on my laurels and just get my nails done. I think be of service to the world. You know, I've been lucky enough to be given opportunity. I'm not going to squander that. You know, I just think I want to empower and uplift everybody, whether it's through music or now it's through books. You will find it if you want it through what I've done. You spoke there about the advice to write what you know. Yeah. And there are many things that you know about in Rosie Frost. And one of them, you write very movingly about her mum dying. Yeah. And for you, it was your dad yeah. at a formative age. Do you mind my asking how much of that you brought into the yeah. text? And did you find it cathartic? It's funny because, well, I mean, grief is a strange thing and death. It's going to happen to all of us at some point in our life. We just don't know when. And what occurred to me when I was younger, that I didn't have the tools to talk about it. And I was just sort of left with this stone cold feeling of, I didn't want to make anyone feel awkward. So I didn't have the right tools to express how I was feeling. And also, you know, that's a British stiff upper lip. And, you know, whereas in the East, they used to talk about it, they're much more, but it also gave me a sense of my own mortality. I wanted to put that in the narrative very subtly. So if, if you don't care about looking at that, you won't, but it's there if you want it. So if anybody's, you know, having grief, let's look what it looks like, you know, let's examine it. And Rosie is going through that, not perfectly. She's quite angry. If it can make you angry or cold, mm. detached. So I wanted to put that in there. And the other thing, it was really interesting. I didn't know I did it until I finished it, right? So I wrote the prologue and the first chapter last. The publisher, Penguin, the American, because I had two publishers, American and British, and they're both amazing. But she said to me, can you just give a bit more backstory of Rosie before she gets there? Mm -hmm. You know, before she gets to Bloodstone Island and where she came from. And that's where the school is, Bloodstone Island. Yeah. yeah, Bloodstone Island is this school, and we can talk about it in a minute. But before she gets there, she's at a different school, just an ordinary school. And you see what happens to her, how she gets pulled out of school in the middle of a class and told that her mother is dead. That's what happened to me. But it was my father that was dead, and I was studying Hamlet at the time. And after I finished it, and it wasn't until I looked back, I realised I'd written about what I know, mm. my own experience. I thought, oh, my God. Mm. So it's really interesting that was naturally, I think we turn our poop to fertilizers, but so to speak. Yes. You know yeah. I, mean? <laughs> I think you can say pain into art, but I much prefer poop into fertilizer. Yeah. Then so it's good. useful. Yes. Everything is copy. It's, everything is copy. Everything is copy. And, and everything I believe can have meaning. Like you can be in control of the meaning that you attach to something. Yeah. In the fullness of time. I'm so sorry, first of all, that you went through that experience. If you weren't talking about it, how did you get through the grief? And what advice would you give now to anyone who might be listening who is in the depths of 
that kind of grief? I, just grief is a very strange thing. And everyone, I don't have the perfect answer, that's for sure. What I, my experience is time. And it sounds like a cliche, but it's true. It doesn't make it better, but it makes it easier. Mm. And just sharing, I think, with people that might know what you're going through, I think that's helpful. That, that's what I would say, is you're not alone. Did your dad die before you were famous? Yes. And I feel, and this is the other thing, there is one upside of losing a parent when you're young, and I call it death energy. I don't think I would be as driven as I was if I didn't understand the value of life. Mm -hmm. And I think losing a parent, not only are you losing someone, but you suddenly become aware of your own mortality. Because before then you think, oh, I've got my parent between me and my own death. Do you know what I mean? Or even if I'm, you know, whatever I do, I know my parents there. And so when that is removed, you're suddenly staring in the face of your own, whatever's in front of you and the unknown. Yeah, I call it death energy. It's like a gas in my tank. Like I, I've got to get on with life. Mm. What do you think he would have made of it? Or It's interesting because I think, you know, my father was, he was into like old Hollywood. He introduced to me so much music and literature and, you know, he tried to make me like into Shirley Temple when I was a little girl. So, you know, I'm sure he'd be very like pleased. I used to you think, you know, think about him doing it for him. Mm. But actually, as I grew older, just time, you say, OK, why am I doing that? And who am I doing this for? It's like any job that anybody's doing. What are you doing it for mm. and for whom and why? This is quite an odd question, but yeah. bear with me. And you yeah, don't have that's to right. But I know that you are someone with faith. And I wonder if you feel that you will meet him again. That's so interesting. I've never thought about it like that. I don't know. I'll think about it. Yeah. Have you ever dreamt about him? Not really. No, I haven't. No. Think about it and come yeah, back. I think, yeah. <laughs> come back when the second in the Rosie yeah. Frost installment yeah. is out. I wanted to ask you about writing. So we had this chat with William Boyd. He was really helpful. Presumably you've stayed in touch. Yeah. He's a lovely man, isn't he? He's amazing. Yeah. He's so amazing. Like, can you imagine? He's got awards for his books and his, you know, all the things that he's done. He's amazing. He's incredible. And he started teaching me about structure and, you know, how he does it. Like my first book, it was hard. It took me long. It was almost like I had to dissect it and break it apart and put it back together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he told me about you can either just write, which is amazing. You just go off you go you know, which is, is lovely in itself because you don't know what's going to happen. But then the other way is to do a structure, which I've done for, I've just finished my first draft of the Rosie 2. Excellent. And I did it the way he said, structure it first. And, and it, it was much, much easier. It took longer to start. Yes. But then it was quicker, much, much quicker. Writing. Yeah. How did you find it writing alongside your everyday life? It's really hard. Yes. Because you've got two children, diff yeah. very different ages, and yeah. a stepdaughter. Mm -hmm. So how does that, there's that famous quote about the pram in the hallway and whether that affects art. And I wonder how- What you, is the quote? It's a Cyril Connolly quote, and it's something about the pram in the hall is the enemy of art. Interesting. Who is Sarah? I don't know who that is. He was a literary editor. I mean, classic man who said that quote. He probably yeah, had never changed a way, enough in there, his life. Yeah, hang on. There is, we can all sort of, procrastinate or get distracted so easily and it was Dawn French who also writes books she's a, always been a very long standing friend of mine and she said to me leave your phone outside the room leave it it's a creative killer and so it's the discipline of leaving it out and making the appointment for a few hours you know, for me, it was like from nine o'clock. My mind is fresher between nine and 12, I would mm. say. No matter what, that you're going to the desk, you're going to do it. So that's what first things first is that. Nothing else. Not Do not be disturbed. You know, go down, you know, yeah. for a cup of tea or something like that. But you can't do anything else. Okay. And no internet. So do you, do you write on a laptop? Yes, but here's the thing. Yeah, I write on a laptop, but here's you've got to be careful. There's two things that I learned. One is switch off because otherwise you can get, you know, like notifications, notifications yeah. and that interrupts your train and suddenly you, but the only other thing is sometimes I'd 
turn on the Wi-Fi because I'm doing a bit of research and suddenly you go down rabbit holes. <laughs> or, you know what I mean? Wormholes of like research. Yeah. And you're like, what the heck? And you can suddenly go down. I did that more on Rosie too, actually. Okay. But yeah. Your second failure is not applying yourself enough at school. Yeah. Tell us why you chose this as a failure. Do you know what? We can all have regrets in life. So I went to a really good school, a grammar school. I got picked. Two kids out of, you know, from this junior school from a very different background. I was very distracted. I don't think I had the mental discipline and support to really anchor myself in learning. I'm really curious. When I loved the teacher, like I loved my German teacher. I love German. I did well in German because she got my attention. But part of me thinks, oh, did you squander that opportunity? Right? And then I went back to education. When did you go back? I went back. So, so I left school, kind of went and studied at college for a little bit, left that, then went back again. Okay. I went, okay, now I'm going to study theatre and English literature. I'm going to go for A-levels. That's a really brave decision to go back. When yeah, I went back. I was, yeah, I was, I was like, I think I was 19, 18, yeah. 19. I went back because I, I took a year out. I tried one course and it wasn't for me. I was sort of lost. I think, you know, I think that the late teenage years are probably so important to be actually having that support from adults because it's like, I think they're tod- we're toddler adults. We're like bikes that still need stabilizers. We're finding new things that we've got to deal with, but we still need a little bit of support. Mm. You know, I look back at that and think, hmm. I wish my attention was better. I did okay at my exams. You know, I did okay, respectable, but I could have done so much better if I was focused. You know, I didn't revise hardly, but I just didn't have that sort of discipline and anchoring. Did you not have the structure at home to help? No. Do you feel, because you're clearly so highly intelligent and very into history and you've written books and lyrics and everything, but... I wonder if you felt for a period of your life like an imposter, because sometimes when you don't get the academic qualifications that are worthy of you, you feel like you don't deserve the space that you're claiming. So interesting, because there can be, I think in any walk of life, we can get marginalised, you know, that you're not this or you're not that. Mm. It's life, isn't it? You know, you can feel like alone because you're the only one that loves reading, that much you can suddenly not feel cool yeah I was thinking to myself the other day I was thinking maybe I can really acknowledge that it's you know being I don't even know what the term is whether you're sort of nerdish or you know make that cool can we rebrand it you know that so you know that it's in its own it doesn't matter which side of the fence you are we can all feel alone did you feel when you were ginger spice that your nerdy side got sidelined because you were the epitome of cool and sexy for so many of us but I wonder if you felt like that inside I think we put all our battle shields on our Batman suits it doesn't mean it's not true Mm. it's just putting on a different armor Mm. so to speak at that what's needed at that time that's that's what's going to serve me being a student didn't mean I stopped reading. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I just thought, well, I, you might think one thing about me. That's okay. You know, and to anybody out there, I'm, we've all had assumptions made about ourselves. If someone's judging a book by their cover, sometimes we're a fluffy bunny with a book in our back pocket. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Who cares? Tell me more about that because I think that one of my flaws still to this day is that I care too much what other people think of me. Are you liberated of that? Not completely, but not as much. Okay. There you go. I think there's progress, but not perfection. Of course, you know, we're human. I think it's natural you want to be liked. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when you said to me, I, you really enjoyed my book, I'm like, oh, that's so fantastic. I'm thrilled. Yeah. You know, I'm not a robot. I'm not immune to your love and, uh, you know, affection. And, but equally, I suppose maybe I'm a bit more discerning about whether I care about that particular person's opinion. If it's someone that I care about or you think, oh, okay, and maybe there's something to look at in myself. Mm. Why? You know, it's finding that balance. You know, I don't want to be like arrogant to think, oh, it's not going to sink my boat. But equally, you just think, oh, okay, it would have been nice if I connected to you. We all want to, 
I think it's human. You take it as more constructive feedback, and if it's yeah. not constructive, then you so can you think, okay, eliminate he, it. I'm, and also having the humility. Not everyone's going to like me. Do you know what I mean? I think I'm all right. I think you're very likable. Oh, thank you. I really do. You're oh. so lovely. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I like most people. Yeah. But who have you met who you really hated? I'm uh, no, I, well, you know, not everybody. I'm not going to be everybody's cup of tea, yeah. and that's okay, I suppose. If I am your cup of tea, that's very nice too. Your daughter Bluebell recently got nine A stars at GCSE. How did that feel for you, given what you've spoken about in terms of your own school experience? I think it's so easy having to put our own badge of honours onto our children and, you know, or helicopter mum or those things. I am no way perfect in this. I'm learning every day how to, you know, to parent. What I hope is to be, you know, a really good support to her. You know, she can make her own choices, but just reflect back. And anyone with a 17-year-old, you know, they want to make their own decisions, but you can give them, like, honest feedback, whether they take it or not. But I will say this. I've been very blessed and lucky to have achieved some things that I'm proud of in my life. But when I watched my own daughter open her own GCSE results and her face, I've never felt so proud. You know, it was incredible feeling. But equally, my husband, when I watched him win championships, and I know he has worked so hard. This has not been an easy ride. I felt more proud of their achievements because just watching it, I feel happy for them. I felt happier for them. And trust me, I still want to achieve and I still want to win in my own field. But it's a lovely feeling. Yeah. Well, especially everything you went through and having raised her on your own. I mean, I know you had good friends who helped you, but that is a wonderful thing. You know, she's on her own path and chapeau to anybody that's, you know, they bring up children there is no right or wrong way to do it but I do feel very proud of her you should your final failure is lessons on backstory (laughs) you've touched on it yeah do you get lost in the backstory Jerry no actually I think sometimes this is what I learned that if I bring a new character in and I don't I haven't really flushed it out what they want who they are Put it this way, it's much better if I know exactly who they are, then it's so easy to answer the question to know what they do. Mm. When you write, you get to play God, yes. right? And so you've got this series of characters. And so I know exactly who Charlie is and I know exactly what he would do and how he would say and how he respond. And I can say, oh, Bina, she would never do that or she would definitely do that and Rosie wouldn't do that. If I do that sort of due diligence, that preparation first... It makes life easier when you're in the thick of it. Yes. It sort of exposed it when suddenly, actually giving it to an editor, she said, oh, I need to know more about this person. Mm -hmm. And they feel a bit thin in their narration of her. And I thought, oh, yeah, I can see that. I've sort of budged it a bit. Do you find that in real life as well, like off the page? Because one of the things that immediately struck me about you was that you were interested. You asked me lots of questions, which is a really, again, a lovely quality. Do you want to find out the backstories of people you meet? I think my mother's like that as well. Yeah. You know, she's very chatty and she likes to know people. And so I've had that example. I'm definitely like that, by the way. I'm super (laughs) nosy, some people might say. Yeah, I mean, but... I think it doesn't matter, you know, whether you're the postman or the president. Mm. Everyone's interesting and it, and everybody matters. It depends what day you get me on. Okay. You know, you know if I was tired and grumpy, hangry, yeah. so to speak, then I might not be as interested. And we can all get into, like, through the bondage of self. But isn't it quite nice when you hear something about someone and, and sometimes you have to sort of unpick someone a little bit and then that feels a privilege if they share something that yes. you wouldn't know. Who's the most interesting person you've ever met, do you think? Okay, the most, like, <gasps> okay, yes. I, I can tell this is really, I'm wowed by it. Okay, so I'm, I have spent the company of Judy Dench. Oh, yeah. that's a good one. That's a good one, yeah. isn't it? I started studying acting again. I was looking at Shakespeare so I was with this acting teacher and she gave me the Merchant of Venice to look at one of the famous speeches 
And so when I was with Judy, we started talking and I was telling her and then she started quoting it. And so then I started doing it with her. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. But she's got such a beautiful energy. She's just amazing lady and inspiring. And you think, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like you. You know, you're gorgeous. And she's one. And another one is Dame Shirley Bassey. So they're both dames. Yes. Yeah. She's amazing too. She's amazing. She sung Happy Birthday to me. And I was like, oh my God, because when I was a little girl, my mother used to say, when I used to sing often, my mother used to say, Shelly Bussy Arm, Shelly Bussy Arm. So I used to sort of sing and do lift my arms up like Shelly Bussy. And then Shirley Bussy has turned out just to be incredible. What a life. Yeah, that's nice. What an extraordinary turn your yeah, life yeah. takes that you have ended up yeah. with Shirley Bassey, Dame Shirley Bassey singing you happy birthday. Yeah, she's lovely. I want you to become a dame. Then just like you three dames can hang out together all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's in your future. I also wanted to ask you about backstory in terms of how you apply it to yourself. Because I'm interested in how you perceive each decade of womanhood. Because I think that as women, we have been historically sold a lie, which is that our age diminishes us. And actually, my experience, and I don't know if it's yours as well, is that I feel I know myself much better every single decade that passes. And that actually is the source of power. And so I really wanted to ask you what your take was on ageing. So interesting. Obviously, I've connected with girls, you know, across the world, girls and boys and everyone anyone and define their power of who they are I actually felt I don't know maybe a, a moral obligation to look at how I move forward as a good example and it's not I'm not perfect I'm not doing this perfectly but actually I asked myself the question can I age with grace and power mm. find a different kind of power because otherwise, it's another way of marginalization, prejudice. Yeah. It's another way to box you in. But equally, every age is a different age, is a different chapter. You know, not to try and hold on to that age and not to hide one's age. I felt if I hide my age, that's a betrayal to everyone, you know, to all my peers, my brothers and sisters, to everyone. So, you know, for me, I'm trying, not perfectly, to say, look, I'm learning how to age with grace. And what I've experienced so far, okay, so in my, you know, teenage 20s, I had youthful bravado. The 30s, you know, no longer the ingenue. It was really difficult. Or the peer pressure to tick the boxes. It was really difficult. I couldn't quite work it out. I felt lost. Mm. Then 40s, it started to turning point. And I naturally, I started to find that sort of ownership of identification that wasn't built on a bravado. You know, I'd fallen down so many times. You know, I know what it feels like to fail. So the bravado is gone. But in the 40s, it started building up experience and learning that that is something beautiful in itself. And then actually finding power within boundaries that actually I can be attraction rather than promotion. You know, there, there is quality in less is more, I can say no. All those things that actually I don't need to people please. And that comes with a huge amount of confidence and experience. That comes and with that age. comes in your 50s? I, I think so, yes. But tell me more about attraction rather than promotion. It's not over-promoting. Like, for, yeah. okay, we, I can use any example. I could say to you, oh, please, please like my book. And actually, or please like me, please. Like, and actually, is that how attractive is that? But if... I'd say, do you know what? I'd really like you to read my book. I think, you know, I felt something when I did it. And you might too. Or at being an example of like, an example of power rather than telling anyone to be powerful. Does that make sense? Yes, I love that. It's it, such that, a good I think way that, of putting it. Yeah, I think it, that's, isn't that more attractive? Actually, I'm suddenly attracted to someone because of the way they are rather than telling me how I should be. Yes. I'm striving for that. I'm still not perfect. That's the gift of age. You're like, well, this is me. What for girls wear pearls? Okay, that's, it is what it is. Yeah. If you could give a piece of advice to yourself in your 30s when you were feeling lost and under yeah. pressure, what advice would you give? Or what would you, you say? You know, I'd to say it to anyone now is that tranquilo, like calm, you've got time. 
you've got so much time. You know, you've got more time than you realise. It's your path, not anybody else's. Yeah. Because otherwise, if we compare to they're doing that and they're doing that at this age, I think it's it's quite a lot of pressure. Final question, yeah, Sherry. What is it about Anne Boleyn that you love so much? <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? Yeah. Because if we've really broke it down, mm-hmm. first of all, I was just intrigued because of you know I love the Tudors, yeah, I'm, you know, and it looked glamorous and it looked dramatic. And for, when I first started, you know, looking at giving. Heaverbridge, it's the name of the school in the book, a history. I thought about Queen Elizabeth I, and then I looked to her mother, and somebody said to me, no, 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 don't pick Anne Boleyn. It was a bloke. He said, don't pick her. She's not liked. Right? And I thought, oh. And I thought, well, what? And then I thought, I looked at her narrative, and I thought, well, who wrote this narrative? And then I said, well, actually, she seems quite smart. And then I started unpacking her, her history. She believed in reform, the NHS. Okay, and the more I got, to, you know, to understand her story, I thought, actually, maybe this woman was shamed for being smart and clever, and she was just murdered by a misogynistic pig. You know, she had a three-year-old daughter. Yeah, Henry VIII. She had a daughter that she had to leave behind that was, you know, that was not even three. Did she deserve to be murdered for that? You know, for what the people said about her, we don't even know it was true. And I thought, actually, if we just fast forward the tape to now, you know, that women can be put into boxes. And so I felt like, this is interesting. Can we look at this? Maybe she deserves a rebrand. Yes. Maybe she deserves a rebrand because who told us that about her? Actually, maybe she was just smart and, you know, caught up in somebody else's narrative. And obviously her daughter was the greatest monarch ever. So that was kind of some of it. I love it. I, I love it. It's all about... It's her redemption. It's the redemption. It's the power of unboxing someone from those boxes. They've make been her human. Into, make her human and make her her own hero, which is the story of Rosie Frost. And it's the story in so many ways of your life thus far. I can't wait to see what you do next. And I just can't tell you what an honour it's been oh, to chat to you today. Thank you so, so much, Jerry Halliwell-Horner, for coming on How to Fail. Oh, thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, I would so appreciate it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Apparently, it helps other people know that we exist.